You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Bienvenue to you and you. Welcome to episode 35 of Attaboy Clarence. Wonderful to be back with you. Episode 35. How time flies. Remember this? Hello and welcome to Attaboy Clarence. My name's Adam and this is a new weekly podcast for classic movie and old-time radio fans like myself. The horror. The absolute horror. But wait. It got worse! Those of you with even a passing interest in classic movies will, I'm sure, know that the words Attaboy Clarence are the last spoken in Frank Capra's It's Wonderful Life. Shudder! What could be more appalling? Here's what! I'm also a massive fan of old radio shows. <laughs> are you really? You massive, massive tool. God, I hate that first episode with all its echoey, rubbish-osity. For anyone who's heard that piece of and is still subscribed, pick up a knife and fork and get ready for a plate of Canterbury. 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 You deserve it. You know what I've got in my hands right now? Oh, dear. I think someone might be naked. I've got those big red and blue packages of Quaker-popped wheat and Quaker-popped rice. Never been more glad to hear that. Because I wanted to tell you, fellas and girls, something about the famous smiling Quaker man on the front of these packages. You know, he's your guarantee that you're getting the original, crisp, fresh, shot-from-gun cereal. Cereal shot from guns again. What were they smoking when they thought that up? Huh? Who said that? Me. You? Yes, me. Who are you? Adam, this is kind of my show. Please continue. You were talking about shooting cereal out of guns. I was, but gee, I never expected you to say anything. Okay. Kind of feel bad for interrupting you now. You do? Yeah, I sort of threw you off your spiel. Sorry about that. I'll shut up. Well, that would be nice. Sorry. Uh, Buy some breakfast things. Everyone shot from guns for some reason. It's brilliant, I guarantee. He's your guarantee that you're getting the original, the one and only Quaker Pop Wheat and Quaker Pop Rice. Shot from guns. Good God! Sounds like Charlton Heston celebrating New Year's Eve. Perhaps we'd better go to the still untitled thank you section. Duck! This is the thank you section that still doesn't have a name. Come on! 
First up, thank you to Maud Lynn at Maud Lynn's Menagerie on Tumblr, who very kindly proclaimed the Secret History of Hollywood her new favourite podcast ever. Lots of people were curious at her statement and took the time to come on over to the site and take a look as well as subscribe. So thank you, Maudlin. Please find enclosed one Canterbury. Canterbury. If you like this podcast, by the way, you will like Maudlin's Tumblr, which you can find at maudlin.tumblr.com. She has some amazing pictures on there. I'll stick a link in the show notes. Next up, Beth Ann Gallagher was kind enough to recommend a universe of horrors to her disciples. Beth is the curator of the marvellous SpellboundByMovies.com, a thoroughly superior blog dedicated to my era of movies. Her musings on classic movies are absolutely dazzling to read, and her site is a veritable sherbet fountain of treasures for anyone interested in the movies of yesteryear. She puts my site to shame. So do go on over and take a look at spellboundbymovies.com. She's one of the good guys. To you, Beth, in Canterbury on Rye. Hold the ham. Canterbury. That is the end of that bit again for the second week. When you note the low prices of Clippercraft clothes, you're apt to be puzzled. How do they do it, you'll say? How do they do it? Well, the solution's no mystery at all once you know the facts. What makes them great values is the Clippercraft plan, concentrating the buying power of 924 leading stores across the nation. How do they do it, you'll say? How do they do it? Yes, remember that you buy these famous clothes at your local, favorite local store. How do they do it, you'll say? How do they do it? Where you're treated as a person, not just as another number on a sales check. These days, practically everything you buy costs more, but not so with Clippercraft. How do they do it, you'll say? Wow, how do they do it? Selling expensive clothes at inexpensive prices at the nation's finest independent stores is the great big idea behind the Clippercraft plan. How do they do it, you'll say? I wish someone would tell me how they did it. It's not like I didn't ask. As you may know by now, the horror movies of the Golden Age are catnip to me. I dedicated seven hours to the Universal Horror Cycle in a recent special, and after the Hitchcock specials are finished, I'll be returning to the subject with a special on another of horror's virtuosos. Therefore, any chance I get to evangelize on the darker films of the Golden Age will always be savagely seized upon by this show. Today, I have three I'd like to point you towards. The first is a peculiar little film from 1955 entitled Three Cases of Murder. You may wonder why a film about three cases of murder is featuring in this week's horror selection, but these are decidedly different murders. This is a portmanteau of three stories, each introduced to us by, of all people, Eamon Andrews, who was a television presenter here in Great Britain. Very odd casting indeed. He literally just introduces the stories. There's no framing device or anything. So the first story we're told is entitled In the Picture. And this is your favourite painting of the collection. From the first moment I saw it, it's a masterpiece. Thank you. You find it very beautiful. Well, not... not beautiful. Intriguing. 
A bookish little museum tour guide, Mr. Jarvis, is approached by a sinister gentleman one afternoon in the portrait gallery who asks for a light. Their attention is drawn to a gothic landscape painting featuring a disquieting house shrouded in fog. Mr. Jarvis finds himself moving towards the painting in the company of the sinister gentleman, and before he realizes it, he's inside the painting, walking up the rough track through the fog and towards the dark house. The sinister gentleman, it seems, is an inhabitant of the painting and has stepped out to fetch Mr. Jarvis for a very special reason. And when, in the final moments of the story, the reason becomes clear, it will chill your blood. Come closer to the painting. Have you ever taken a really good close look? I don't mean simply to the point where you can see the swirls and little hills and valleys of paint. I mean close enough to get to the very heart of the pigment. It can be done, you know. All it takes is a little imagination. The second story's name is You Killed Elizabeth and tells the tale of two childhood friends who are in love with the same woman. One night, after a fierce argument breaks out between the two men, Elizabeth is found dead in her apartment. But which of the men is responsible? Edgar, the Lothario and drunkard, who's prone to the odd amnesic blackout? Or George, who's had his heart broken by the fact that Elizabeth chose Edgar over him? I'd like to ask both you and Mr. Curtin a few questions. I understand you're acquainted with Elizabeth Grange. Yes, why? What's the matter? She was murdered last night. The third tale is Lord Mount Drago, the macabre story of a pompous, ruthless politician who destroys an idealistic young Welsh MP in the House of Commons using sarcasm and mockery. After triumphantly leaving the debate, Lord Mount Drago is approached by Owen, the Welsh MP, who quietly vows that he'll have his revenge by breaking Lord Mount Drago's spirit. Subsequently, every time Mount Drago falls asleep, he's humiliated in his dreams by Owen. Upon waking, though, Mount Drago meets Owen, who always gives some subtle clue that implies he knows what happened in the dream. Is Owen truly responsible for the humiliating dreams of Lord Mount Drago? And if so, how is he performing the trick? Is there any way to stop the psychological torment? And if he's pushed too far, to what lengths will Mount Drago go to put an end to Owen's revenge? In the picture is an extremely disorientating story directed by Wendy Toy and using some startling camera work. Almost every shot is skewed somehow, and while it does sag ever so slightly in its middle, the blood-curdling final twist will live with you long after the second and third stories have finished. You Killed Elizabeth is rather like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It's a rather more traditional murder story with a twisty final flourish, rather like an episode of Suspense. Neat, but not remarkable. It's bookended, though, by the chilling first part and by Lord Mount Drago, my favourite of the three, which stars Orson Welles as Mount Drago, who was working on the London stage at the time and who took the role as a day job. 
He's utterly fantastic in this and really rolls up his sleeves and gets stuck in. Whether it's wandering around with no trousers or singing a very hearty version of Daisy Daisy, he really is larger than life here. And the tale itself is a very creepy finale to a solid trio of dark little campfire tales. The concept of a man attacking another man through his dreams is rather terrifying in itself, but it ends with an even more terrifying prospect. One I can't spoil for you. You'd kill me. Anyway, a very strong portmanteau of stories in one deliciously chilling bundle. It's largely forgotten now, but seek it out. It's absolutely worth your time. Next, we travel to 1944 for Voodoo Man, starring Bela Lugosi, George Zuko, and John Carradine. This is the plot. A mad doctor called Richard Marlowe, played by Bela Lugosi, kidnaps beautiful women drivers by using a remote control hedge, no seriously, to make them stop their car, whereupon John Carradine and George Zuko snatch the girls from their car and then drag the girls to Lugosi's underground lair. Is there any other kind? Don't be frightened, we won't hurt you. Lugosi then uses voodoo to transfer the life force from the beautiful girls, they must be beautiful though apparently, to his dead wife, who is sitting in a chair and doesn't look dead, so that she can live again. Dead? She has been dead for 22 years. How can she be dead then? She's dead only in the sense that you understand that word. I'm on the threshold of bringing her back to complete life. Investigating the disappearances is a Hollywood screenwriter, for reasons that I was unable to fathom, who, after exposing the voodoo cult thing, turns the whole experience into a script for a movie, which leads to a hilarious exchange at the film's end. There you are, boss. There's your horror story. The voodoo man, eh? Is it any good? Well, I don't know about that, but don't tell me it couldn't happen, because it did. Didn't it, honey? It certainly did. And another thing, I'm starting my vacation right now. See you in two weeks. Come on, honey. Bye. Who do you think played the part of the voodoo man? Say, why don't you try to get that actor, uh, Bela Lugosi? It's right up his alley. <laughs> First of all, a remote control hedge? Seriously, a hedge? Secondly, the bloody costumes are absolutely ridiculous. The voodoo robes look like Yuri Geller's curtains, and I can't work out whether the voodoo ceremony is the best thing I've ever seen or the most inept. You've never known ridiculous until you've watched George Zuko, covered in face paint, wearing a Tina Turner wig, chanting a load of mumbo-jumbo while John Carradine hits a bongo drum, and Bela Lugosi casts a voodoo spell on some girls. Lugosi's voodoo spell seems to consist of him saying the mind over and over again. And then just basically saying what he wants to happen out loud. Soul from body to body. Soul from body to body. Emotion to emotion. Emotion to emotion 
life to death. It's like a very basic form of JavaScript. This was directed by William Bodine, a man who, quite honestly, would direct anything. Some of his film titles include The Feathered Serpent, Bela Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla, and the film I probably most want to see in all the world, 1966's Jesse James Meets Frankenstein's Daughter. Imagine that conversation. Say, you don't look nothing like your daddy. How come you ain't got a flat head? Oh, well, you're the unfortunate victim of a common misperception. Uh, my father was actually Frankenstein, not the creature he created. You're not alone in this. Weren't the... your daddy played by Boris Karloff in one of them there movies? Uh, no, in fact, he was played by Colin Clyde. How come you ain't got faults in your neck like what he had? Well, as, as I explained, you're mixing up my father So with... does that mean your mum was that crazy-looking lady with the stripes in her hair? No, that was Elsa Lanchester, who So, was... you ever done a killing? Uh, no, I'm actually an Oxford undergraduate. I've been studying law for the You past... ever rid a horse? Uh, yeah, uh, yes, I, I have several. You ever worked in a whorehouse? Uh, yes, uh, for about six months to help with my tuition fees. It was How quite... comes you ain't got a flat head? So anyway, Voodoo Man is one of the most painful experiences you will ever have watching a movie. Aside from the fact that it's extremely unscary, mind-bogglingly annoying, and looks as though it was written, directed, and costumed by a very bored child, it is also one of the most stupid Stupendously dull films in the history of cinema. I defy you to watch it in one sitting. It took me three solid attempts. It's so bad that when it finished, I actually got the urge to invent time travel just so that I could travel back to 1944 and kick William Bodine in the shins. Watch it if you like, or slowly stick hot, angry scorpions up your nose. It'll feel the same. The third film. I want to tell you about is a slice of classic gothic horror from 1949 based on a short story by Alexander Pushkin. When I was preparing for this show, I planned to rewatch these three films over three nights once the rest of the family were tucked up in bed. Three Cases of Murder, I had no problem racking that one up. Same goes for Voodoo Man, it's almost a comedy. When it came to the third film though, I have to confess, I was nervous about watching it again because part of me remembered the effect it had on me the first time around. It's odd because part of me doesn't class this film as a horror, more of a psychological thriller, but in its darker moments, when it quietly begins to attack you with its shadows, it becomes the stuff of nightmares. The kind of film that warps in the memory to become something truly terrifying. And it is this warped memory that will haunt you in the small hours of the night when you are alone and at the mercy of the shadows. The Queen of Spades is the story of a Russian soldier named Herman Suvorin who longs to be independently wealthy despite having come from a background of poverty. He begins to gamble at the game of Faro and doesn't have much luck, but soon he hears rumours about the fabulously wealthy Countess Renevskaya, an ancient widower in long, shuffling dresses.
The rumor is that the countess made her fortune by selling her soul to the devil in exchange for the secret of how to always win at Faro. She won a fortune, but the horrors of her visit to Saint-Germain left a mark on her soul for the rest of her life. Unable to gain access to her, Savorin begins to romance the Countess's ward. One night, he succeeds, and confronting the elderly lady with a pistol, demands that she tell him her secret. I know why you won't speak. The secret is connected with some terrible sin. That's it, isn't it? But I make a bargain with you. Tell me your secret and I take your sin upon my soul. Do you hear me? I mean it. A bargain. I'll take your sin upon my own soul. Speak to me, you old fiend! By God, I make you! Terrified, the Countess dies of heart failure. Soon afterwards, when he goes to pay his respects to the Countess at her funeral, something rather horrifying takes place. Savorin retreats to his rooms, scared and believing that the secret is lost forever. But then the night arrives, bringing with it the shuffling sound of the Countess's long dresses, brushing across his floor in the darkness. The Countess, it seems, has returned from the grave to tell Savorin her terrible secret. But she has one last trick up her sleeve. This is certainly an oddity. For starters, many horror films provide their chills using visual techniques. Even the hackneyed sight of a cat jumping out of a shadow relies mainly on the slow ratcheting of imagery until that final burst. The Queen of Spades is a chilling film to look at also, but never before have I been so haunted by a film's sound design. The slow dragging of the Countess's dresses as she approaches in the night is truly blood-curdling to behold. And that's not to say that the film doesn't contain a hatful of spine-tingling imagery. It absolutely does, but it's a quieter horror. It's a film of long shadows. I seem to be selling this as a horror movie, which in actual fact it isn't. It's the tale of a man's damnation through his own greed. It's just that the film's director, Thorold Dickinson, an absolutely overlooked genius, adds a ghastly fog to the supernatural elements that tip the film over into horror territory. Watch it and you'll see what I mean. The first half of the film is the tale of Savorin as he worms his way into the household of the Countess using some truly diabolical techniques so that he can get his hands on the Countess and her secret. The traditional horror elements come later in the film, but they're so well realised that the film will live in your memory as a classic of gothic horror. Well, today's radio offering comes from Suspense and is rightfully regarded as a classic of radio horror. So I'll tell you what, if you feel like spooking yourself a little, go the whole hog, turn down the lights, leave the door slightly ajar, and turn up the volume as we visit 
The House in Cypress Canyon. Suspense. Radio's outstanding theater of thrills is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wines. Those better-tasting California wines enjoyed by more Americans than any other wine. For friendly entertaining, for delightful dining. Yes, right now, a glassful would be very pleasant as Roma Wines bring you Robert Taylor, star of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's Undercurrent, in a remarkable tale of... Suspense! Merry Christmas, Jerry. How's the real estate business? Oh, kind of early with your greeting, aren't you, Sam? Well, I gotta get them in sometime. I may not see you again until next Christmas. If this real estate racket gets any crazy, I'll be dead by next Christmas. <laughs> I'm glad you could get up here, though, Sam. What's on your mind, Jerry? Uh, you, you'll probably shoot me when you hear it, Sam, because I'm probably nuts. But, but doggone it, you're a detective and you're my pal, and I just had to tell somebody. Well, you sound like it's serious. That's just it. I, I don't know what it is, Sam, but... Now, listen, you you know we're agents for a group of houses up in Cypress Canyon. Mm -hmm. Those places that were started before the war never got finished. Oh, yeah. All they got in were the foundations, just mm -hmm. concrete and a couple of beams. Well, they've been finished now. In fact, I'm putting up the for rent on the last of them today. What do you want? Police protection from the mob? <laughs> listen, Sam, this house that I'm talking about, it's got a number now, uh, 2256. But before, when the men went back to work on it about three months ago... Well, they just started when the foreman on the job brought me a shoebox that he'd found up on a beam. And this box had a, a what do you call it, a, a manuscript in it, a story, kind of, all written out. Yeah. Well, he gave me the thing. I read it. I didn't think much about it. I put it in my desk. But the other day, when I happened to drive by there, I saw the number on the house and what the house looked like. I thought of this manuscript. And, well, I don't like it, that's all. There's something funny about it. What's funny about it? Well, he, Mind you, this thing was found in an unfinished house in Cypress Canyon. House that was only just started building. All it's, right. Uh, well, listen, Sam, I want to read it to you if you got the time, and you'll see what I mean. All right, shoot. <clears throat> well, here's how it begins. Uh, to whom it may concern, my reasons for setting down on paper what follows here will be abundantly clear. What follows here will be abundantly clear to anyone into whose possession it may fall. First, let me say that I'm a very ordinary person. My name is James A. Woods. I'm 35 years old. By profession, a chemical engineer. My wife, Ellen, was a schoolteacher when I met and married her in Indiana seven years ago. There's nothing in the past life of either one of us to suggest remotely any cause or reason for the dreadful thing that has invaded our lives. Our married life has been in no way different from that of millions of other average, reasonably happy, and congenial families. Three months ago... I was ordered by my firm to take charge of a rather minor project in Los Angeles, uh, Hollywood to be exact. The order was a sudden one. There'd been no time to secure accommodations, and conditions being what they are, the inevitable result was that until day before yesterday, we'd been living in the cramped quarters of one of those characteristic California motels. Needless to say, most of our spare time had been devoted to a search for something more permanent and comfortable, but... The fruits of these efforts had been, financially and in every other way, a geometrical progression of discouragement. Until last Saturday afternoon, only four days before Christmas. We were driving into town on our way to a movie when Ellen saw it. Jim, look. 
What? That sign in front of that real estate office. Oh, yeah. But yeah. don't you see what it says? For rent, furnished, two-bedroom house, close in, immediate occupancy. Yeah, uh-huh. Aren't you going to stop? Oh, Ellen, you know a sign like that. It mean right out in plain sight in front of a real estate office. Oh, yeah, but Jim... Either they want $600 a month... We'll or... never know until we ask. But if it's any good at all, there are probably 50 people fighting for it right back there now. Well, honey, there's no harm in trying. Now, is there? You really want to go back? Oh, it's probably foolish, but what can we lose? Okay. Oh, darling, come on, cheer up. How do you know? Maybe our luck's changed. Maybe fate's going to give us a nice new house for a Christmas present. Come in. Oh, uh... We're sorry to bother you, but we just happened to see that for rent sign outside. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, I hung it outside just this minute. Is... is the house available? Why, sure, sure it is. Uh, let me introduce myself. My name is James A. Woods, and this is my wife, Ellen. How to do? Wow. Looks like it's fixing to rain. Yes, so it does, doesn't it? Well, it was one of those things. The real estate agent had just been authorized to rent the place by mail that morning, and he'd hardly had time to look at it himself and put up his sign when we drove up. It was just an ordinary little California house about halfway up Cypress Canyon, number 2256. Just an ordinary, undistinguished little house. The agent didn't know much about it. Construction on it had been stopped by the war, and it had just been completed and furnished lately. It had been vacant while somebody's estate was being settled, and... Now it was owned by a bank in Sacramento. Of course, we didn't. We didn't got care this about key in the mail along with the authorization to rent. Only one there is. Of course, you can have duplicates made. Yeah, seems to stick a little. Oh, no, there it is. Doesn't sound as though that door had ever been opened. Well, a little oil on the hinges will fix that all right. Oh, sure. Now, now here's your living room. Furniture's a little dusty, of course. You've got to expect that. It's good furniture, though, you see? Benson Brothers. Yes, uh-huh. Now, over here's a little den. Panel, you see? Radio, fireplace. Really a very attractive little room, particularly for a man. Uh-huh, yep. Now, the, the bedroom's off the living room here. Everything's all on one floor, you understand? Uh-huh. It's uh, quite nice, I think. Yes, uh-huh. You can see you get the morning sun here. There's a view of the canyon through these front windows. You got cross ventilation. That's about all there was to it. It wasn't the best place in the world. It was small and badly built, but what would you have done? We took it with as little inspection as that. It was the Saturday before Christmas. And the very same evening, we were struggling up the steps from the road with suitcases and boxes and armloads of clothes and... All the endless bric-a-brac that people collect and never know they have until they move. Ellen began unpacking, and I began moving things around and taking the worst of the pictures off the wall, doing all the little things that everybody does when they move into a new place and try to give it something of their own Don't be such a sour puss. You know, it's a roof over our heads for Christmas. That's more than we ever thought we'd get, isn't it? Now, what in the world are we going to do with those two pictures? Why don't we just leave them where they are? Jim, we can't. They're too awful. Well, all right, put them in the closet then. I can't. Both the closets are jammed full. No, I mean the other one in the little alcove off the den. At least there's a door there. I suppose it's a closet. Yeah. I don't know. If that isn't a commentary on the housing problem, huh? A woman moving into a house without even knowing where all the closets are. 
Take the pictures down, will you, honey? Bring them in here. Okay, okay. Oh, I guess you'll have to help me with this door. I can't get it open. Let me see it. Well, of course you can't, silly. It's locked. Where are those keys we found on the desk? Mm, here they are. Mm, no, not this one. Sure, this one won't work. Feels like an awful solid door for a closet. Oh, and that's one solid door in the house. No, nope, this one won't do it either. Well, we'll just have to get a locksmith up here on Monday. I'll put the pictures behind the desk, okay? Yeah, yeah, all right. Jim, if you could just help me move this armchair, huh? Oh, Ellen, will you let it go until tomorrow? You know what time it is? Oh, but, honey, I'd like to get the place looking just a yeah, little bit. Yeah, but it's bit... almost midnight. In fact, it's, it's exactly... What was that? <laughs> Tomcat, I guess, out in the brush somewhere. Sounded near. Oh, hope that doesn't go on all night. Well, there's much we can do about it. Come on, Ellen. I'm dead tired. All right, Jim. All right. Where'd you put the toothpaste, honey? It's right in the medicine cabinet. Oh, yeah. Jim, we ought to get some firewood tomorrow. You know, a fire in that living room would make all the difference Next in the world. Cab, Sunday. Well, Monday then. Jim, I think red curtains are what we need, don't you? Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, just at least for the living room. Anyway, the ones in there now have just got to come down. Yeah, I suppose they do. What do you think of red? Well, I guess it's all... Jim. That's some tomcat. Jim, it, it sounded in the house. Oh, now, how could it be in the house, Ellen? We've been over every inch of the house. Except the closet. Now, how could a cat or anything else be in the closet that's been locked up for over a year? I don't know. It's... it's probably under the house. A wildcat or mountain lion or something. I hear they have them in California. Jim, I don't like well, it. Well, neither do I like it, but there's nothing we can do about it tonight. Well, maybe we ought to call somebody, the police or oh, some neighbor. Oh, don't neighbors. be silly, Ellen. You act like a kid. Come on, let's go to bed, huh? Uh, all right, I suppose it is silly. Jimmy, did you lock the door? Yeah, yeah. Can I turn out the lights now? Yeah, all right. Good night, Ellen. Sleep tight. Good night, Jim. I don't know what time it was, perhaps an hour, perhaps only a half hour later. My mind was in that hazy borderland between sleep and a dream that's still part of consciousness. <coughs> then I was awake. <coughs> Ellen, are you all right? Yes. Did you have a nightmare or something? No. I heard it too. Well, that didn't sound like any cat. Put on the light. Yeah. It seemed to be out there, Jim, in the house somewhere. I'm going to look into this. Jim, you be careful. Come on. Where's, where's my shotgun? In the den, I think. Jim. What? There. There's something wet. What? Wet? Running from under the closet door. Sticky. Hey, Ellen, don't. Don't touch it. I had to. Jim. It's blood. For suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Robert Taylor in the house in Cypress Canyon. Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage Robert Taylor as James A. Woods, 
with Kathy Lewis as his wife, Ellen, in the house in Cypress Canyon. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. not be too difficult to understand from the foregoing why I've taken the pains to set down in writing the events related here. To find in one's newly rented house a closet which cannot be opened is in itself certainly no great cause for alarm. But to be awakened in the stillness of the night by unearthly cries within that house, to find oozing from under that closet door something that is unquestionably blood, that's another matter. Perhaps others might have been braver than we. Suffice it only to say that we got out of the house in something very close to a panic and only returned when we had the moral support of two stalwart Los Angeles policemen. You uh, just moved in here, you say? That's right, officer. You can, you can see we're still unpacking. And the place has been empty right along before that? Yeah, I, I don't know much about that part of it. You could check all that with a real estate agent, though. Well, uh, <clears throat> where is this closet? Oh, it's it's right in here, officer. And, and the blood, the blood is... Where? Where's the blood? Jim... Officer, I, I swear to you, there was blood on the floor less than an hour ago. I, I saw it. Uh-huh. It, it was running out from under that door. We heard that noise, and we got up, and then we saw it. The, the door was locked. Locked, huh? Oh, no, I... Well, it seems to be all right now. Hey, uh, you folks aren't trying to be funny, are you? Is, isn't there anything in it? No, ma'am, there is not. Look, officer, we're reputable people. You can call my firm. They'll tell you all about me. There's nothing wrong with this closet. Walls are solid, no trapdoors. You think I'm lying? I didn't say that, mister. Oh, you probably did hear some sort of a noise, and you got a little panicky, and... What, uh, what about the blood? It, it got on my hand. It isn't there now, is it? Yes. Where? I, I feel it. <laughs> now, you folks, just take it easy. You know, you're liable to hear all kinds of noises up in these canyons at night. You're uh, from the east, you say? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, officer. Oh, that's all right, that's all right. If you have any real trouble, call on us any time. All right. Well, good night. Good night. Good night. Hey, <laughs> you ought to have this door fixed. That's enough to scare you. Yeah, we're, uh, we're going to have it fixed. say much about it after that. There wasn't much that could be said. The next day, I went down to a lot and bought a little Christmas tree and some trimmings, and we tried to pretend we were cheerful, but there was an uneasiness between us that had never been there before. Ellen seemed tired and listless. Several times during the day, I noticed her washing her hands with a, with a brush, scrubbing the one that had touched the blood. That night, we each took a sleeping pill and went to bed. sometime after midnight when I was suddenly wide awake and staring into the darkness. In some way, I, I knew at once and instinctively what had awakened me. Ellen was not in her bed nor in the room. The nameless thing I feared gripped at my heart until I could scarcely breathe. I opened the bedroom door and started through the house, putting on every light that I could find. There was not much to search, but I searched thoroughly. The, the living room, the kitchen, bathroom, den, even the garage... And all the time, the dread of looking where I knew at last I must look. For I think I knew from the very first time where I'd find her. It 
must have been a full minute that I stood before that closet door. Then, I opened it. She stood there rigid, her arms at her sides, her fingers extended like claws. Her hair was over her face, her eyes stared out of it. Her lips were drawn back in a grin like an animal at bay. For a moment, I was frozen with the horror of it. I stretched out my hand. Very deliberately, she turned her head and sunk her teeth until they met into the flesh of my forearm. I'd raised my hand to strike at her, but already she'd relaxed her hold and gone utterly limp. She would have fallen unless I'd caught her. I carried her into the bedroom and laid her on the bed. Strangely, at that moment, my only thought was how I might revive her. Until I saw that it was, it was not a faint, but a sleep that she'd fallen into sleep as deep and heavy as though she'd been drugged. And so I left her. But for me, that night, there was no sleep. Jim? Yes, Ellen? Oh, I, I got a little restless. I'd make some coffee. Oh. Oh. I had the most wonderful sleep. And I feel so rested. Do you? Mm-hmm. Jim. What? What's the matter with your arm? Oh, I I just heard it. Well, honey, it's it's terribly swollen. Let me see it. No, it, it's all right, Ellen. Oh, it isn't all right. You've got to see Dr. Wesley right away. Sure, I, I will. No, I now, will. you promised me, Jim, that you'll go the first thing this morning. How'd it happen? Why, oh, uh, th- th- there was a dog. A dog? Yeah, I, I heard him trying to chew through the screen door. I went out to chase him away, and he bit me. Well, you mean there was all that racket, and I didn't even wake up? No, Ellen, you, you didn't even wake up. It was clear to me that Ellen knew nothing of what had transpired the night before. I went to my office that morning and made a pretense of going over routine business, if only to restore my mind to some semblance of calm by the sight and sound of common, familiar things. Pain in my arm had become a persistent, dull throbbing. I made a late appointment with Dr. Wesley. He treated my arm with something of an arched eyebrow, and he said, Well, I've never seen anything quite like it before. That is such a rapid onset of infection. It was dark when I left his office. I hadn't realized it was so late. Driving home, my car seemed seemed sluggish until I saw the needle on the dashboard and realized that I was pushing it to the utmost of its speed. I was racing home to prevent... prevent something before it was too late, before the darkness had conspired against me. Somehow I already knew with certainty that it was the darkness and the night that I had to fear. The curves of the canyon seemed endless. And then the cold fear leaped up inside me. My house, too, was dark. I went slowly up the stone steps from the road, looking, praying for some sign of light or life. There was none. The house was empty. Ellen was gone. I I looked with the same self-torturing thoroughness. And in that closet, first of all, knowing as I did so that it was hopeless. And so, alone in that empty house, I waited, powerless and helpless now, deadened 
and thought and will, empty as the house itself, save only for the overwhelming sense of a terrible foreboding. It was sometime in the early hours of the morning when I snapped on the radio, shortwave. Why? It's surely a minor question now. I only know that I did. And then I heard it. Car 58, car 58, go to Laurel Canyon, the 4,000 block. A report that a man has been injured or attacked. Condition thought to be critical. Ambulance will follow. That is all. I was there almost before the police, edging my way through the little crowd, staring down at the man lying there in his white uniform under the streetlight. Yeah, the milkman, poor guy. I heard him scream, but when I got here, just like this, there's All nothing right, on stand, stand back, stand oh, back. Please, please stand back. Well, you again. I, I heard it on the radio. I, I live just down the road. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Well, what happened? Well, take a look. Maybe you can tell us. He was dead. And he was lying on his back. And his throat had been torn out as though by the fangs of some wild animal. It is now Christmas Eve. Or rather, Christmas morning, for it's a little after midnight. I've been waiting here. Here in the stillness of this empty house for nearly 24 hours. Waiting for the end. Already once tonight, I've heard that dreadful wailing cry somewhere in the hills. I've nailed up the closet door, but that I, I know is childish and useless. My arm is horribly swollen and turning black, but that's nothing. It's another end that I foresee, as, as surely as other men foresee the rising of the sun. I hear the cry again. It's nearer now. I shall leave these notes in a sealed envelope and put it in a shoebox in the hope that someone will give credence to these dark and terrible events if indeed such nameless horrors can ever yield to mortal understanding. As for myself, I feel no longer any fear or even sorrow. Only a desire that the end and the thing that I must do may come soon. And it will be soon, I know. Yes, but there is someone at the door. Someone at the door. Huh? What do you make of it, Sam? <laughs> it's quite a yarn, but what of it? That's what I thought. Now listen, that's not quite all of it. Huh? Clip to it's a newspaper clip. Listen. Hollywood, December the 26th. Police reported what was apparently a case of murder and suicide in Cypress Canyon sometime in the early hours of the morning. The victims were James A. Woods, a chemical engineer, and his wife, Ellen. Preliminary investigation indicates that Mrs. Woods was killed by the blast of a shotgun in the hands of her husband, who then turned the weapon upon himself. That she fought desperately for her life, however, was evidenced by the disorder of the room and the severe lacerations inflicted upon her husband about the neck and arms. This is the second tragedy to be reported in Cypress Canyon within 24 hours, the other being the unexplained death of Frank Polanski, a milkman. Well, no such murders or whatever they were ever occurred, if that's what's worrying you. The clipping, well, 
have those things printed up, you know. No, no, it's not that, Sam. That story was found in an unfinished house in Cypress Canyon. No number, no nothing, just a framework. Uh-huh. Now that house is finished. When I drove by it today... But that's what stopped me, Sam, because it all fits. Now that it's finished, it is the house in the story, the same construction, the same vines and creepers on the lawn, even the same number. So what, a guy who knows roughly what this house is going to be like writes a yarn and loses it or something? Did he know the place was going to be listed for rental today, the Saturday before Christmas? Oh, Jerry, coincidence. Two bits you find the guy next door is a ghost story writer or something, and he's been wondering for a year what happened to that thing he wrote. Okay. Okay, coincidence. <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry I bothered you, Sam. <laughs> Don't be silly. I liked it. It's a good yarn. Uh, that the uh, for rent sign you were talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to put it up outside now. Uh-huh. Well, so long, Jerry, and Merry Christmas again. Yeah, well, thanks, Sam. <laughs> I guess I was kind of silly, all right. <laughs> Listen, when a guy named uh, whatever it is, Woods, with a wife named Ellen comes in to rent that place from you, then you can start worrying. <laughs> yeah. Well, so long, Sam. So long, Jerry. Come in. Oh, we're sorry to bother you, but we just happened to see that for rent sign outside. Well, yeah, I hung it out just this minute. Is... is the house available? Oh, sure, sure it is. Let me introduce myself. My name is James A. Woods. And this is my wife, Ellen. How do? Well, looks like it's fixing to... Yes, it does, doesn't it? chilling stuff. That was the house in Cypress Canyon from the magnificent suspense radio's outstanding theatre of thrills. For anyone with an interest in old-time radio, the detective you heard in that story at the beginning and end, Sam, was indeed Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett's famous creation from the Maltese Falcon, played here by Howard Duff, who also played him in The Adventures of Sam Spade for Radio, a cameo here seems, as both shows shared the same producer. Anyway, that wraps things up here for this week. Next week, I'll be paying tribute to one of my favourite actors, as well as presenting you with a double bill of a radio show whose concept is so mind-bendingly fantastic that it will make you laugh out loud at its audacity. It truly is one of the most brilliant ideas for a radio show ever, and well, you'll see next week. I can't wait to show it to you. Don't forget, leaving an iTunes review for the show improves your blood circulation, which is always nice. So hop on over to iTunes. And if you don't want to write a review, that's fine. Just click a star rating. It only takes a second. I'll be back in a week's time. So until then, bye for now. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. 
So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.